Welcome to one of those times in a life, sharing songs and stories around the virtual campfire. At this campfire, not through loving yet. You're looking at someone who still is becoming some of what I thought I'd be Chancing and choosing Winning and losing Hoping and blind faith needs Those are the first few lines of Not Through Loving Yet, a song written over the course of a year as an answer to a question I posed to Milt Jones the day we buried Pat Sands. The question was, is love worth the loss, loving worth the losing? Asked another way, does joy outweigh the despair, hope win over doubt? By early November, the question asked in June about the loss of a friend also became one about loss of faith in myself as well as the stories that I had grown up believing. And then more questions about loving after losing that special someone. And then after losing that sense of who I thought for sure I was, and because the crisis of faith came from so many directions, it would take more than one leap of faith to find my way home. While we don't often choose to test our faith, our faith will test us, starting with a crisis. It's been said the word crisis, written in Chinese, is made up of two characters, one representing danger and the other opportunity Whatever the dangers might have been, this was my opportunity to learn anew what it meant to love and to be loved, and not as a child might, but as an adult must. One way to explain the difference is to describe how my love of country changed from that of a boy to that of a man with a crisis that was a war in Southeast Asia. In 1964, as a 17-year-old, after being named a high school All-American and lineman of the year in the state of Washington, I was recruited by the Air Force Academy to play football and become an Air Force cadet. The idea thrilled me. Growing up in Spokane in the 1950s, I'd learned to hunt, to wave the flag, and to pray before proceeding I'd been taught the Soviet Union was a monolithic evil empire and that the only China worth recognizing was an island formerly known as Formosa, while that place on the globe mysteriously designated Red China might as well have read, There Be Dragons. The language of the time included phrases like, Better dead than red, and America, love it or leave it, and how I loved it. And yet, thankfully, my life did not include becoming a member of the Air Force. Beginning in 1964 until 1975, 
The Air Force played a big role in making Laos, a country unlucky enough to border Vietnam, the most heavily bombed in the history of the world. In those nine years, the United States of America dropped 260 million cluster bombs on that country. 75 million of those bombs, containing about 3 billion pounds of explosives, failed to detonate and 40 years later continue to kill an average of a person every day. As a boy, I could love my country by overlooking facts and acts like those, but as a man, love demanded looking over them, not always liking what I saw, changing where possible, and hopefully accepting when necessary. The idea that love was worth the loss demanded testing and tempering, with what I was calling my truth detector. In that process, I began to learn that the only way to guarantee there was love in the world was for me to choose to be loving. And that to be loving was something I couldn't simply choose once, but needed to choose over and over again. And by so choosing, discovering how close love is to fear, and how many fears that I had to face. Times I've been compelled To run from myself Till I'd nowhere else to go Then saw through the eyes of someone Who'd survived things that I needed to know. In 1984, I was introduced to the white swans and snow geese that come each winter to the Skagit Valley an hour north of Seattle. The birds are often found near the mouth of the Skagit River on an island created as that river forks north and south just before it flows into Puget Sound. That place, Fur Island, is only a few miles and yet a world away from the busy interstate that rushes north to Canada and south to California. Each year, many of the 30 to 70,000 snow geese that migrate from Russia's Wrangell Island from northern Alaska and from the Canadian Arctic, spend the winter on or near that island, joined by as many as 8,000 trumpeter and tundra swans that do the same. And while I continue to be inspired every time I see those mighty birds, that first visit remains a most profound and deeply spiritual experience. Like a lot of kids, I grew up going to church and then in my 20s became disillusioned by what felt like the church's hypocrisy, their seeming acquiescence toward the Vietnam War and the eventual kidnapping of so much of the canon of Christian culture by what became known as the religious right. That disenchantment led me away from the church. And then years later, on that winter day, among those birds in the Skagit, I sensed again the unbreakable spiritual connection to something inside myself, to something bigger and beyond myself, represented 
perfectly at that moment by those magical, mysterious, majestic white birds. It's a bond I've nurtured regularly by winter pilgrimages to Fur Island as well as visits to shrines, temples, and churches built in every culture to express an individual and collective reverence for and gratitude toward such connections. And while I am able to let those birds and that day simply be a special moment, I've also spent lots of time wondering why them and why then? As is often the case in such significant experiences, there is a gaggle of reasons. Perhaps most important, as I stood there in the dark light of that winter day, those birds had the power to open and begin to heal my wounded spirit. Every bird was important. The fact that together they created a flock or skein of geese, a flight or lamentation of swans, somehow helped calm that spirit. That something as tangible as those birds could be so spiritual made that spirit sing. The fact that that moment and those birds might be linked to someone's similar experience a thousand years before, and if we're wise enough stewards to someone else's a thousand years from now, gave my spirit wings. And as my spirit soared, I wondered in how many other ways that I have no knowledge of is the world made better. And that wondering, it lightened and enlightened that spirit. That day, those birds also represented something that remains unexplored and unexplainable and wild and that we try to tame at our peril. And while I've had similar feelings on the banks of salmon spawning streams, the fact that on that day, those birds were in the midst of and not at the end of their journey made my spirit smile. And the rhythm of their flapping wings made my spirit dance. I learned faith in the process of love and lost causes too. Love is no cause for regret. Although it has hurt me and still may desert me, I'm just not through loving yet Just before Christmas in 1983, Johnny Cash checked into the Betty Ford Treatment Center and temporarily stopped recording and touring. When he returned to the studio and went back on the road, my song, Dear Partner, the one I was so sure he was going to record and use to introduce his wife in concerts, was no longer part of his plans. I was devastated, but knew there was nothing to do but move on. My mom saw it a little differently. In her mind, Johnny Cash had said he was going to record one of her son's songs, and doggone it, he should do it. 
And so, in 1984, when Johnny Cash started touring again and scheduled a stop in Spokane, my mom figured that she'd tell him that he should record the song. Our family knew Mike Koblick, a founding member of the Chad Mitchell Trio, who was the director of the Spokane Opera House at the time. Mom called him, and no, he couldn't arrange a meeting with Johnny Cash, but he could probably get him a tape. So the night of the concert, Mom dropped the tape with a few of my songs in Mike's office. And when she and I talked the next day, she said she couldn't believe the number of tapes on Mike's desk waiting to be delivered to Johnny Cash, or more precisely, to someone in his entourage. We laughed, one of those gotcha kind of laughs. And I thanked her for making the effort and keeping the faith. And that seemed to be the end of it. And then a few weeks later, I called Charlie Bragg, my publisher in Nashville. He said he'd wanted to call me, but was waiting until something was more certain. What had happened was Johnny Cash had phoned him and said he was going into the studio with Willie Nelson and wondered if Charlie still had a tape of Dear Partner because they wanted to record it. Within half an hour, Charlie was in Cash's office with a tape of that song and a few others that I'd written. This guy's a great songwriter, Charlie told Cash. I thought you might want to listen to a few more of his songs as well. Already have, Cash replied. When I was in Spokane, his mother gave me a tape. Well, Charlie and I both laughed a nervous laugh. He said he'd let me know when there was more news. I called my mom that night and told her she should know that Johnny Cash was talking about her. And she and I laughed again, this time one of those you-never-know kind of laughs. And while I would love to tell you that Dear Partner was one of the songs on the first Highwaymen album featuring Johnny and Willie and Waylon and Christofferson released early in 1985, it was not on that album or any other album that Johnny Cash released. And Charlie never really found out why. In the course of a year, when it came to Dear Partner, I had heard yes, no, yes, no, and finally, silence. It was an almost famous moment that ended up being a break that didn't happen. And in a business where it matters who you know and who knows you, you never know, so I just keep trying to introduce myself. The song remains a signature song for McCoy and me. A song that held so many dreams and now also so many memories. And when I get discouraged, I think of the chorus to a song by Richard Lee and Susanna Clark. Sing like you don't need the money. Love like you'll never get hurt. Dance as if no one is watching. It's got to come from the heart if it's going to work. And then I also need to remember that even when it comes from the heart, that it doesn't always work. I learned the hard way Loving day to day Means giving more than I can take And that at times love Still is not enough though Loving is not my mistake. 
1984 was one of the most productive years I ever had as a songwriter. McCoy and I introduced 23 new songs in a concert that September, many of them songs we continue to sing today. Fourteen of the songs were published in Nashville. Listening to those songs now, I realize that just as it was hard for me to stand on a stage alone at that time and share personal songs and stories, it was easier for me to write songs about other people living other lives, either real or imagined. There were exceptions, like this old guitar of mine, that begins, This old guitar has been at times the only friend I knew. It could tell what I was feeling if I was glad or mad or blue. And whenever there were feelings I felt but couldn't explain, I picked up this old guitar and I listened to her play. There was the song Love Has Survived. Peggy Bradley, who worked at the publishing company in Nashville, said she kept the lyrics to that song in a desk drawer for years. She especially liked the line, There's no place you can touch me that ain't gonna hurt. That line is followed by nowhere I can go without ghosts, that's for sure. So many reasons I've learned how to cry, and somehow I know now love has survived. The song, When I Say I Love You, starts, Till you've said goodbye and had to mean it, you don't know what it means to say goodbye. With the chorus concluding, I do know what it means to say goodbye. Know the reason somebody cries. Know how it feels when a dream won't come true. And I know what it means when I say I love you. And then there's the song woven into this chronicle, Not Through Loving Yet, that starts, you're looking at someone who still is becoming some of what I thought I would be. There are a number of songs written for and about McCoy. Songs like a love song from an old rock and roller and Run With The Wind with a chorus that says, maybe you'll catch me and maybe you won't because when I run, I run with the wind. There's the song My Father's Footsteps that McCoy dedicated to his dad in that September concert. And the song begins, As a kid, my dad and me walked together by the sea. I tried as only children can to match those strides there in the sand of those footsteps. My father's footsteps. I was celebrating Father's Day with Pat Sands' parents the year after he died, and Mama Bear kept talking about all those adventures that she'd shared with her son. And finally, Papa Bear looked up from his chair and said, he never wanted me to watch. And that sad realization inspired the song's refrain. I never wanted him to watch, but God, I hope he sees the way I saw the way he walked and how I tried to be in those footsteps, my father's footsteps. There was a song from McCoy and me to sing that was meant to be a sort of a sequel to Dear Partner. It starts, been a while since I've seen you. How's it been? Do you want the truth or the lie? I can tell stories you wouldn't believe. I believe it's there in your eyes. 
And there was the song where the titles will play on words. I am flannel shirts and Levi's. You are satin, lace, and pearls. I make my way down country roads. You're a woman of the world. You are chauffeur, driven limos. I'm a 60s Chevrolet. And that's how it is, though every night you simply make my day. There were story songs. The year before, I had written a song called Since First We Said Goodbye about someone drawn to the sea. And for that September concert, I wrote a song for the person who waits for the man to come home and a song for them both to sing when he gets home that says in part, I don't know all the reasons why, and I don't trust them that do. But I know I'll know no truer friend or better love than you. There was a song about a Vietnam vet who ended up in Alaska. And in the chorus, the singer says, The war may be over, but there's battles to fight. One will be raging again tonight. I've tried running, but I just can't hide from the scenes I keep seeing and the feelings inside this war-ravaged mind. And one of the songs was written from my friend Drager's dad, Otto. One day I asked Otto what his biggest dream was when he was growing up. His answer became the verse to a song. The answer went, Sometime I'd like to swim a river that is so deep and wide that I could come out being somebody else when I got to the other side. And maybe that's one of the gifts of being a songwriter. We get to spend time imagining what it's like on the other side of the river. Was during the big test of laying to rest Someone I loved and was lost it started to set in how much he took with him and how love was still worth the loss. Not long ago, I listened to a recording of the 1984 Seattle concert for the first time in over 25 years. It made me smile, cringe, and shake my head all at once. I'd forgotten how many new songs were introduced that night. It was a lot to ask of McCoy to learn all that material. The show went on for nearly three hours, demanding a lot of the audience. I will say I spent a lot of time tuning my guitar. And there were troubles with transitions and with endings, and the songs tended to be a little fast and a little tentative at times. The biggest problem may have been that because I was trying so hard to remember the words... I had trouble remembering what the songs were saying, although it was clear I was intent on saying whatever was being said intently, and in lots of cases intensely, so that the dramatic tended to often veer toward the melodramatic. And as I listened to the patter in the introductions, I felt like when I was talking, I was playing a role or creating a character on the stage. And remembering back, I, I wish I'd enjoyed it more and been more confident and not worried so much. Which when I think about it, those are life lessons I, I tend to keep learning 
over and over again. And although it was easy to be critical, there was a lot of care that went into that concert. The time and work McCoy and I put into the songs was there, even though the wheels came close to coming off any number of times during the show. When we started rehearsing, the songs would be so rough, and he'd come up with a change in the lyric, add a phrase idea here, harmony part there, and suddenly the songs would begin to come alive. Ted Brancato, who was living and working in New York, spent lots of time on arrangements for the band. The musicians were world-class. A guy who'd been doing lights for us for a few years became a friend and for this performance added photographs and did back screen projections for visual effects. For instance, we sang songs for Pat Sands and there would be images of Pat on the big screen behind us. It was without a doubt the most ambitious show we ever did. We'd put care into every detail. We ended up printing books of lyrics for everyone in the audience. In the introduction to the booklet, I wrote that the previous 15 months had contained some death, serious illness, questions of the heart and heritage. I said there was no easy or complete answers, but in a continuing process, time brought feelings of hope and love, understanding and thanksgiving. We included a second handout with the words to a new song that offered a hand for the leading a heart for the meeting, a life for the sharing, a love for the daring, a song for the singing, hope for the bringing, a candle for the darkness, a light for all of us, a time to remember, a head shaker, and a smile maker. And as I stood on that stage next to McCoy, at the end of that concert, after asking the audience to sing a chorus of Kumbaya, I might add, I had my answer to the question that I had asked Milt Jones more than a year earlier. For me, love was surely worth the losing. I had also relearned that we are connected to things bigger and more than ourselves, that it's important to sing like we don't need the money, and the only way to truly find out who we are and what we're made of is to continue to put ourselves out there knowing that in the process we often find out who we are not and what we are not made of. And somehow we've got to let go of all that, holding on as tightly as we can to all that's left. I learned faith in the process of love and lost causes too. Love is no cause for regret Although it has hurt me and still may desert me I'm just not through loving yet I'm just not through loving yet Thanks for sharing one of those times in a life. At the next campfire, some brothers and a mother. Hope to see you then.